Chapter 15 of the Autobiography of George Dewey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 The Battle of Manila Bay. Manila Bay is a spacious body of water opening out from a narrow entrance between high headlands and expanding toward a low-lying country until it has a navigable breadth of over twenty miles. On either side of the inlet are high volcanic peaks, densely covered with tropical foliage, while in the passage itself lie several islands. The principal islands, Corregidor and Caballo, divide this entrance into two channels, known as Boca Grande, the Great Mouth, and Boca Chica, the Little Mouth. Boca Chica has a width of two miles, while Boca Grande would have double this if it were not for the small island of El Fraye. This being some distance off the mainland practically reduces the breadth of Boca Grande to about three miles. Corregidor and Caballo are high and rocky, effectually commanding both entrances, while El Fraile, though smaller, is large enough to be well fortified and to aid in the defense of the broader channel. No doubt the position is a strong one for defensive batteries, but the Spaniards, in keeping with their weakness for procrastination, had delayed fortifying the three islands until war appeared inevitable. Then they succeeded in mounting sufficient guns to have given our squadron a very unpleasant quarter of an hour before it met the Spanish squadron, provided the gunners had been enterprising and watchful. Examination of these batteries after their surrender on May 2nd showed that there were three 5.9-inch breech-loading rifles on Caballo Island, three 4.7-inch breech-loading rifles on El Fraile, Rock, and three 6.3-inch muzzle-loading rifles at Punta Restinga, commanding the Boca Grande entrance, which our squadron was to use. Three 8-inch muzzle-loading rifles on Corregidor, three 7-inch muzzle-loading rifles at Punta Gorda, and two 6.3-inch breech-loading rifles at Punta Lasisi, commanding the Boca Chica entrance. The complement manning these batteries, as given by the official papers found in the Commandant's office at Cavite Arsenal, was 13 officers and 246 men. While the muzzle loaders were relatively unimportant, the six modern rifles commanding the Boca Grande at a range of a mile and a half, if accurately served, could deliver a telling fire. A cable received from our Consul General at Singapore the day before we left Mears Bay stated that the Boca Grande channel had been mined. His information was from the steamer Isla de Panay, which had just arrived at Singapore from Manila. These agreed with the accounts of Consul Williams and with those of merchant captains from Manila who had recently arrived in Hong Kong. The subject of mines had been fully discussed in the conferences of myself and staff and the captains of our ships. We decided that submarine mines in Boca Grande might safely be considered a negligible quantity. First, the depth of water rendered the planting of submarine mines in Boca Grande, except by experts of much experience, a matter of great difficulty. Secondly, 
either contact or electrical mines would deteriorate so rapidly in tropical waters as to become ineffective in a short time after being placed and thirdly all agreed that the many reports of warnings to vessels of notices that the passage was dangerous of compulsory pilotage and of spectacular zigzag courses appeared suspiciously like a cry of wolf intended to have its due effect upon a presumptuous enemy it was a similar course of reasoning i recall that opened the suez canal during the arabi pasha rebellion Hundreds of merchant steamers had been blocked at the entrance to the canal in the fear of mines said to have been planted by the Egyptians, when an Italian man-of-war under the command of a torpedo expert, late Vice-Admiral Morin, Minister of Marine, appeared. He said that the Egyptians had hardly skill enough to lay mines properly, and if these had been laid as long as reported, they were probably innocuous. So he steamed through the canal in spite of warnings and thus raised a blockade that had lasted for weeks. The city of Manila lies upon the eastern side of Manila Bay, some twenty-five miles from the entrance, with the headland of Sangley Point and the naval station of Cavite five miles nearer. At all these places there were shore batteries, which added materially to the problem that our squadron had to solve. The batteries on the waterfront of the city had thirty-nine heavy guns, four nine point four four five point five two five point nine two four point seven breech loading rifles nine eight point three muzzle loading mortars eighteen six point three muzzle loading rifles and eight breech loading Krupp field pieces at Sangley Point was a battery with two five point nine breech loading rifles and at Kanakau, one 4.7 breech-loading rifle. These three guns and three of the Manila batteries fired on our ships during the engagement. It will be noted that four guns of the Manila batteries being over nine-inch were larger caliber than any on board our ships. Before reaching the entrance to Manila Bay, there is another bay which might be made an invaluable aid to the protection of the capital and its harbor from naval attack. This is Subig Bay, situated thirty miles to the northward of Corregidor and directly upon the flank of any enemy threatening Manila. With this strategic point effectively occupied, no hostile commander-in-chief would think of passing it and leaving it as a menace to his lines of communication. But with it unoccupied, the way was clear. The Spaniards had inaugurated a small naval reservation at Olongapo, the port of Subig, and at various times appointed boards of officers to report upon the strategic advantages of the situation. So emphatic were the recommendations of these boards in favor of Subic as a naval station in place of Cavite, that the change might have been made except for the strong social and official opposition, which preferred life in the capital to comparative exile in a provincial port. Therefore, the fortification of the bay had been neglected, and although at the last moment there was a nervous attempt to improvise defenses, so little was done that when on April 26 the Spanish admiral finally realized that Subic Bay was the strongest point for the defense of his fleet and of Manila, and accordingly sailed from Cavite for Subic, he found upon arrival that comparatively nothing had been accomplished and that the position was untenable. 
Only twenty-four hours before the arrival of our scouts, he got under way and steamed back to Cavite. In his official report, he writes feelingly of his disgust that no guns had been mounted and that the entrance had not been mined. He was in error about the mines, however. A Spanish officer assured the executive officer of the Concord that eighty mines had been planted in the entrance to Subig Bay. Some fifteen others, which the Spaniards had neglected to plant, were found later by our officers in the Spanish storehouse at the Subic Bay Naval Station. In order to get their powder, the insurgents had pulled up many of the eighty that had been planted. So far as our squadron is concerned, no doubt if we had entered Subic Bay, we should have found the mines there as negligible a quantity as those which had undoubtedly been planted in Manila Bay and its entrances. I simply mention their existence to show the state of Mint's information in the Spanish Admiral's mind about his own resources. He naively adds, in continuing his report, that under the circumstances his vessels could not only have been destroyed if found in Subic Bay, but that, owing to the great depth of water, they would have been unable to save their crews in case of being sunk. What a singular lack of morale, and what a strange conclusion for a naval officer! Lieutenant John M. Ellicott, U.S.N., who was one of the officers of the Baltimore, in his article upon The Defenses of Manila Bay, published in the Proceedings of the U.S. Naval Institute, June 1900, says, In the face of all evidence, the existence of mines at the entrance to the bay can scarcely be doubted. A chart was captured at Cavite next morning with lines of torpedoes marked on it in Boca Chica and off San Nicolas Shoal and with marginal memoranda about the spacing and number of mines. In the Articles of Capitulation signed by the Governor of Corregidor, it was stated that mines existed in Boca Grande. The testimony of nearly every Spanish officer interviewed by the writer after the fall of Manila was to the same effect. If these mines were contact mines, they had become innocuous from barnacles or seaweed or badly adjusted moorings. If they were electro-controlled, the firing devices had not been installed or were defective. A comparison of the relative strength of the two squadrons about to be engaged may easily be made by consulting Appendix A, which, however, does not mention some twenty-five small gunboats not brought into action, but which might have been transformed into torpedo launches for night attack or defense of the entrance to the bay. In action we had six ships, to the Spaniards seven but we were superior in class of vessel and in armaments. We had fifty-three guns above the four-inch caliber and the Spanish thirty-one, fifty-six guns under four-inch to the Spaniards forty-four, eight torpedo tubes to the Spaniards thirteen, officers and men one thousand four hundred and fifty-six to the Spaniards one thousand four hundred and forty-seven. It will be seen that, in keeping with American naval precedent, we were much more heavily armed in ratio to our personnel than the enemy. Neither side had any armored ships, and both fought with brown powder. The fact that we were not armored made the heavy guns of the Spanish batteries, if they were brought to bear on us, a serious consideration. As for the batteries noted in the Olympia's official log as having fired on us during the battle, and verified after the surrender, they were two 6.3-inch muzzle-loaders and three 9.4-inch from the Manila batteries, two 5.9-inch from the Sangley Point battery, 
and one 4.7-inch from the Kanakau battery. All except the two muzzle loaders mentioned were modern breech-loading rifles. As we cruised southward after leaving Mears Bay, the weather was such that we could continue the preparation of crews and ships for action by drilling the men again in battle drills and their stations in case of fire and for repairing injuries to the ships by shell fire while we built barricades of canvas and iron to shield the gun crews protected the sides and ammunition hoists with lengths of heavy sheet chain faked up and down over a buffer of awnings and threw overboard much extra woodwork which while essential to comfort in time of peace might become ignited in an engagement had the spaniards disposed of their woodwork their ships would have burned less fiercely both at manila and at santiago at night all lights were extinguished except one on the taffrail to denote position and even this was so carefully screened as to be visible only from directly astern the presence of the squadron on the waters was denoted alone by the dark forms of the ships and the breaking of phosphorescence at their bows and in the wake of their propellers now Council Williams, when he came on board just before our departure from Mears Bay, had brought news which was anything but encouraging. It upset my preconceived ideas, as I had counted upon fighting in Manila Bay. Just as the Council was leaving Manila, he had learned of the sailing of the Spanish squadron for Subic Bay. Thus, Admiral Montojo, at the last moment, seemed to have realized the strategic advantage of Subic over Manila, which we had hoped he would fail to do. When we sighted land near Cape Bolanayo early on the morning of May 30th, the Boston and Concord were signaled to proceed at full speed to reconnoiter Subic Bay. Later, some of our officers declared that they heard the sound of heavy guns firing in the direction which the Boston and Concord had taken. Although I could not hear any firing myself, I sent the Baltimore to support the two scouts if necessary, and to await the rest of the squadron at the entrance to the bay. As the day broke, the coast of Luzon, which had been indefinitely seen on the horizon, appeared clearly in outline. We kept at a distance of three or four miles as we cruised slowly, keeping our speed to that of our slowest vessel, the collier Nanshan. In the hope of obtaining news, we overhauled some of the fishing boats in our path, but they knew nothing of the movements of the Spanish squadron. At 3.30 in the afternoon, the three ships which had been sent ahead as scouts were sighted at the entrance to the bay. I waited very anxiously for their signal. When it came, saying that no enemy had been found, I was deeply relieved. I remember that I said to Lamberton, Now we have them. The distance from Subic Bay to Corregidor was only thirty miles, as we had decided to run past the batteries at the entrance to Manila Bay under cover of darkness. We slowed down and finally stopped. All the commanding officers were signaled to come on board the flagship when they were in my cabin, and Wilds of the Boston and Walker of the Concord had corroborated in person the import of their signals that there were no Spanish vessels in the vicinity. I said. We shall enter Manila Bay tonight, and you will follow the motions and movements of the flagship which will lead. There was no discussion, and no written order, and no further particulars as to preparation. For every preparation that had occurred to us in our councils had already been made. I knew that I could depend upon my captains, and that they understood my purposes. 
my position in relation to my captains and to all my officers and crews was happy indeed by contrast with that of the unfortunate montojo who tells in his official report of how upon arriving at subic bay on the night of april twenty fifth with six of his ships he found that none of his orders for the defense of the bay had been executed the four five point nine inch guns which should have been mounted a month previously were lying on the shore yet in landing drill our men have often mounted guns of equal calibre on shore in twenty-four hours aside from the planting of the mines which have been mentioned and the sinking of three old hulks at the eastern entrance of the bay nothing had been done soon after his arrival at subic on the twenty eighth admiral montojo received the following cable from the spanish consul at hong kong the enemy's squadron sailed at two p m from mears bay and according to reliable accounts they sailed for subic to destroy our squadron and then will go to manila a council of war was held and the captains of the spanish ships unanimously voted to return to manila rather than as their own council had expressed it be destroyed where they were so on the morning of the twenty ninth the spanish squadron steamed back to cavite the attitude of the commanding officers must have been the attitude of the personnel any force in such a state of mind is already half beaten the morale of his squadron as revealed by montojo's report after the battle bore out my reasoning before the war had begun that everywhere the spaniards would stand upon the defensive this must mean defeat in the end and the more aggressive and prompt our action the smaller would be our losses and the sooner peace would come when my captains after receiving their final orders on board the flagship had returned to their own ships the squadron resumed its course to corregidor as the gloom of night gradually shut out the details of the coast the squadron steamed quietly on toward the entrance of manila bay with all lights masked and the gun crews at their guns by degrees the high land on either side loomed up out of the darkness while the flagship headed for boca grande which was the wider but comparatively little used channel a light shower passed over about eleven o'clock and heavy cumulus clouds drifting across the sky from time to time obscured the new moon the landmarks and islands were however fairly visible while compass bearings for regulating our course could readily be observed it was thirty-six years since as executive officer of the mississippi i was first under fire in the passage of forts jackson and st philip under farragut and thirty-five years since as executive officer i had lost my ship in the attempted passage of the batteries of port hudson then as now we were dependent upon the screen of darkness to get by successfully and then i was a subordinate and now the supreme responsibility was mine if the guns commanding the entrance were well served there was danger of damage to my squadron before it engaged the enemy's squadron if the spaniards had shown enterprise in the use of the materials which they possessed then we might have expected a heavy fire from the shore batteries one who had military knowledge did not have to wait for the developments of the russo-japanese war to know how quickly modern guns of high velocity and low trajectory may be emplaced and how effective they may be when fired from a stationary position against so large a target as a ship 
had the batteries searchlights they could easily locate us while we could locate them only by the flash of their guns when we were ten miles from boca grande we judged as we saw signal lights flash that we had already been sighted either by small vessels acting as scouts or by land lookouts el fraile was passed by the flagship at a distance of half a mile and was utilized as a point of departure for the course up the bay clear of the san nicolas shoals when el fraile bore due south magnetic the course was changed to northeast by north we were not surprised to find the usual lights on corregidor and caballo islands and the san nicolas shoals extinguished as this was only a natural precaution on the part of the spaniards there were no vessels so far as we could see cruising off the entrance no dash of torpedo launches which might have been expected no sign of life beyond the signaling on shore until the rear of the column steaming at full speed was between corregidor and el fraile as we watched the walls of darkness for the first gun flash every moment of our progress brought its relief and now we began to hope that we should get by without being fired on at all but about ten minutes after midnight when all except our rear ships had cleared it the el fraile battery opened with a shot that passed between the petrel and the raleigh the boston concord raleigh and mcculloch returned the fire with a few shots one eight-inch shell from the boston seemed to be effective after firing three times el fraile was silent there was no demonstration whatever from the caballo battery with its three six-inch modern rifles no explosion of mines and no other resistance we were safely within the bay the next step was to locate the spanish squadron and engage it afterward we heard various explanations of why we were not given a warmer reception as we passed through some of the officers in the el fraile battery said that their dilatoriness in opening fire was due to the fact that their men were ashore at punta lasisi and could not get off to their guns in time after they heard of the squadron's approach an eyewitness on corregidor informed me that our squadron was perfectly visible as it was passing through the entrance but for some extraordinary reason the commanding officer gave no orders to the batteries to open fire perhaps the enemy thought that he had done all that was necessary by cutting off the usual lights on corregidor and caballo islands and st nicholas shoals for guiding mariners and he expected that without pilots and without any knowledge of the waters we would not be guilty of such a foolhardy attempt as entering an unlighted channel at midnight once through the entrance as i deemed it wise to keep moving in order not to be taken by surprise when the ships had no headway and as at the same time i did not wish to reach our destination before we had sufficient daylight to show us the position of the spanish ships the speed of the squadron was reduced to four knots while we headed toward the city of manila in the meantime the men were allowed to snatch a little sleep at their guns but at four o'clock coffee was served to them and so eager were they that there was no need of any orders to ensure readiness for the work to come signal lights rockets and beacon lights along the shore now that we were sure of grappling with the enemy no longer concerned us we waited for dawn and the first sight of the spanish squadron which i had rather expected would be at the anchorage off the city of manila this seemed naturally the strong position for admiral montojo to take up 
as he would then have the powerful manila battery mounting the guns which have already been enumerated to support him but the admiral stated in his report that he had avoided this position on account of the resultant inquiry which the city might have received if the battle had been fought in close proximity to it the nanshan and zafiro as there was no reserve ammunition for either to carry had been sent with the McCullough into an unfrequented part of the bay in order that they should sustain no injury and that they might not hamper the movements of the fighting ships. When we saw that there were only merchantmen in the Manila anchorage, the squadron, led by the flagship, gradually changed its course, swinging around on the arc of a large circle leading toward the city and making a kind of countermarch, as it were, until headed in the direction of Cavite. This brought the ships within two or three miles of shore, with a distance of four hundred yards between ships in the following order, Olympia, Flag, Baltimore, Raleigh, Petrel, Concord, and Boston. About 5.05 the Lunetta and two other Manila batteries opened fire. Their shots passed well over the vessels. It was estimated that some had a range of seven miles. Only the Boston and Concord replied. Each sent two shells at the Lunetta battery. The other vessels reserved their fire, having in mind my caution that in the absence of a full supply of ammunition, the amount we had was too precious to be wasted when we were 7,000 miles from our base. My captains understood that the Spanish ships were our objective and not the shore fortifications of a city that would be virtually ours as soon as our squadron had control of Manila Bay. With the coming of broad daylight, we finally sighted the Spanish vessels formed in an irregular crescent in front of Cavite. The Olympia headed toward them, and in answer to her signal to close up, the distance between our ships was reduced to two hundred yards. The western flank of the Spanish squadron was protected by Cavite Peninsula and the Sangley Point Battery, while its eastern flank rested in the shoal waters off Las Pinas. The Spanish line of battle was formed by the Regina Cristina, flag, Castilla, Don Juan de Austria, Don Antonio de Ulloa, Isla de Luzon, Isla de Cuba, and Marques del Duero. The Velasco and Lu were on the other southern side of Cavite Point, and it is claimed by the Spaniards that they took no part in the action. Some of the vessels in the Spanish battle line were under way and others were moored so as to bring their broadside batteries to bear to the best advantage. The Castillo was protected by heavy iron lighters filled with stone. Before me now was the object for which we had made our arduous preparations, and which indeed must ever be the supreme test of a naval officer's career. I felt confident of the outcome, though I had no thought that victory would be won at so slight a cost to our own side. Confidence was expressed in the very precision with which the dun, war-colored hulls of the squadron followed in column behind the flagship, keeping their distance excellently. All the guns were pointed constantly at the enemy, while the men were at their stations waiting the word. There was no break in the monotone of the engines save the mechanical voice of the leadsman, or an occasional low-tone command by the quartermaster at the con, or the roar of a Spanish shell. The Manila batteries continued their inaccurate fire, to which we paid no attention. The misty haze of the tropical dawn had hardly risen when at 5.15, at long range, 
the Cavite forts and Spanish squadron opened fire. Our course was not one leading directly toward the enemy, but a converging one, keeping him on our starboard bow. Our speed was eight knots, and our converging course and ever-varying position must have confused the Spanish gunners. My assumption that the Spanish fire would be hasty and inaccurate proved correct. So far as I could see, none of our ships was suffering any damage. While in view of my limited ammunition supply, it was my plan not to open fire until we were within effective range, and then to fire as rapidly as possible with all of our guns. At 5.40, when we were within a distance of 5,000 yards, two and one-half miles, I turned to Captain Gridley and said, You may fire when you are ready, Gridley. While I remained on the bridge with Lamberton, Brumby, and Stickney, Gridley took his station in the conning tower and gave the order to the battery. The very first gun to speak was an eight-inch from the forward turret of the Olympia, and this was the signal for all the other ships to join the action. At about the time that the Spanish ships were first sighted, 506, two submarine mines were exploded between our squadron and Cavite, some two miles ahead of our column. On account of the distance, I remarked to Lamberton, Evidently the Spaniards are already rattled. However, they explained afterward that the premature explosions were due to a desire to clear a space in which their ships might maneuver. At one time a torpedo launch made an attempt to reach the Olympia, but she was sunk by the guns of the secondary battery and went down bow first and another yellow-colored launch flying the Spanish colors ran out, heading for the Olympia, but after being disabled she was beached to prevent her sinking. When the flagship neared the five-fathom curve off Cavite, she turned to the westward, bringing her port batteries to bear on the enemy, and, followed by the squadron passing along the Spanish line until north of, and only some fifteen hundred yards distant from the Sangley Point battery, when she again turned and headed back to the eastward, thus giving the squadron an opportunity to use their port and starboard batteries alternately, and to cover with their fire all the Spanish ships, as well as the Cavite and Sangley Point batteries. While I was regulating the course of the squadron, Lieutenant Calkins was verifying our position by cross-bearings and by the lead. Three runs were thus made from the eastward and two from the westward, the length of each run averaging two miles, and the ships being turned each time with port helm. Calkins found that there was in reality deeper water than shown on the chart, and when he reported the fact to me, inasmuch as my object was to get as near as possible to the enemy without grounding our own vessels, the fifth run past the Spaniards was farther inshore than any preceding run. At the nearest point to the enemy, our range was only two thousand yards. There had been no cessation in the rapidity of fire maintained by our whole squadron, and the effect of its concentration, owing to the fact that our ships were kept so close together, was smothering particularly upon the two largest ships, the Reina Cristina and Castillo. The Don Juan de Austria, first and then the Reina Cristina, made brave and desperate attempts to charge the Olympia, but becoming the target for all our batteries, they turned and ran back. In this sortie, the Reina Cristina was raked by an eight-inch shell, which is said to have put out of action some twenty men, and to have completely destroyed her steering gear. Another shell in her forecastle killed or wounded all the members of the crew of four rapid-fire guns. Another set fire to her after Orlop. 
another killed or disabled nine men on her poop another carried away her mizzenmast bringing down the ensign and the admiral's flag both of which were replaced another exploded in the after ammunition room and still another exploded in the sick bay which was already filled with wounded when she was raised from her muddy bed five years later eighty skeletons were found in the sick bay and fifteen shot holes in the hull while the many hits mentioned by admiral montojo's report and his harrowing description of the shambles that his flagship had become when he was finally obliged to leave her shows what execution was done to her upper works her loss was one hundred and fifty killed and ninety wounded seven of these being officers among the killed was her valiant captain don luis cadarso who already wounded finally met his death while bravely directing the rescue of his men from the burning and sinking vessel though in the early part of our action our firing was not what i should have liked it to be it soon steadied down and by the time the reina cristina steamed toward us it was satisfactorily accurate the castillo fared little better than the reina cristina all except one of her guns was disabled she was set on fire by our shells and finally abandoned by her crew after they had sustained a loss of twenty-three killed and eighty wounded the don juan de austria was badly damaged and on fire the isla de luzon had three guns dismounted and the marquis del duero was also in a bad way admiral montojo finding his flagship no longer manageable half her people dead or wounded her guns useless and the ship on fire gave the order to abandon and sink her and transferred his flag to the isla de cuba shortly after seven o'clock victory was already ours though we did not know it owing to the smoke over the spanish squadron there were no visible signs of the execution wrought by our guns when we started upon our fifth run past the enemy we were keeping up our rapid fire and the flagship was opposite the centre of the spanish line when at seven thirty five the captain of the olympia made a report to me which was as startling as it was unexpected this was to the effect that on board the olympia there remained only fifteen rounds per gun for the five-inch battery it was a most anxious moment for me as far as i could see the spanish squadron was as intact as ours i had reason to believe that their supply of ammunition was as ample as ours was limited therefore i decided to withdraw temporarily from action for a redistribution of ammunition if necessary for i knew that fifteen rounds of five-inch ammunition could be shot away in five minutes but even as we were steaming out of range the distress of the spanish ships became evident some of them were perceived to be on fire and others were seeking protection behind cavite point the don antonio de ulloa however still retained her position at sangley point where she had been moored moreover the spanish fire with the exception of the manila batteries to which we had paid little attention had ceased entirely it was clear that we did not need a very large supply of ammunition to finish our morning's task and happily it was found that the report about the olympia's five-inch ammunition had been incorrectly transmitted it was that fifteen rounds had been fired per gun not that only fifteen rounds remained feeling confident of the outcome i now signalled that the crews who had only a cup of coffee at four a m should have their breakfast the public at home on account of this signal to which was attributed a nonchalance that had never occurred to me reasoned that breakfast was the real reason for our withdrawing from action 
Meanwhile, I improved the opportunity to have the commanding officer's report on board the flagship. There had been such a heavy flight of shells over us that each captain, when he arrived, was convinced that no other ship had had such good luck as his own in being missed by the enemy's fire, and expected the others to have both casualties and damage to their ships to report. But fortune was as pronouncedly in our favor at Manila as it was later at Santiago. To my gratification, not a single life had been lost, and considering that we would rather measure the importance of an action by the scale of its conduct than by the number of casualties, we were immensely happy. The concentration of our fire immediately we were within telling range had given us an early advantage in demoralizing the enemy, which has ever been the prime factor in naval battles. In the War of 1812, the losses of the Constitution were slight, when she overwhelmed the Guerriere, and in the Civil War the losses of the Kearsarge were slight when she made a shambles of the Alabama. On the Baltimore, two officers, Lieutenant F. W. Kellogg and Ensign N. E. Irwin, and six men, were slightly wounded. None of our ships had been seriously hit, and every one was still ready for immediate action. In detail, the injuries which we had received from the Spanish fire were as follows. The Olympia was hulled five times, and her rigging was cut in several places. One six-pound projectile struck immediately under the position where I was standing. The Baltimore was hit five times. The projectile, which wounded two officers and six men, pursued a most erratic course. It entered the ship's side forward of the starboard gangway, and just above the line of the main deck, passing through the hammock netting, down through the deck planks and steel deck, bending the deck beam in a wardroom stateroom, thence upward through the after-engine-room combing, over again the cylinder of a six-inch gun, disabling the gun, struck and exploded a box of three-pounder ammunition, hit an iron ladder, and finally, spent, dropped on deck. The Boston had four unimportant hits, one causing a fire which was soon extinguished, and the petrel was struck once. At 11.16 a.m., we stood in to complete our work. There remained to oppose us, however, only the batteries and the gallant little Uloa. Both opened fire as we advanced, but the contest was too unequal to last more than a few minutes. Soon the Ayoa, under our concentrated fire, went down valiantly with her colors flying. The battery at Sangley Point was well served and several times reopened fire before being finally silenced. Had this battery possessed its four other six-inch guns, which Admiral Montojo had found uselessly lying on the beach at Subig, our ships would have had many more casualties to report. Happily for us, the guns of this battery had been so mounted that they could be laid only for objects beyond the range of 2,000 yards. As the course of our ships led each time within this range, the shots passed over and beyond them. Evidently the artillerists, who had so constructed their carriages that the muzzles of the guns took against the sill of the embrasure for any range under 2,000 yards, thought it out of the question that an enemy would venture within this distance. The Concord was sent to destroy a large transport, the Mindanao, which had been beached near Bakur, and the petrel, whose light draft would permit her to move in shallower water than the other vessels of the squadron, was sent into the harbor of Cavite to destroy any ships that had taken refuge there. The Mindanao was set on fire and her valuable cargo destroyed. 
Meanwhile, the Petrel gallantly performed her duty, and after a few shots from her six-inch guns, the Spanish flag on the government buildings was hauled down and a white flag hoisted. Admiral Montojo had been wounded, and had taken refuge on shore with his remaining officers and men. His loss was three hundred and eighty-one of his officers and crew, and there was no possibility of further resistance. At twelve-thirty, the Petrel signaled the fact of the surrender, and the firing ceased. But the Spanish vessels were not yet fully destroyed. Therefore, the executive officer of the Petrel, Lieutenant E. M. Hughes, with a whale-boat and a crew of only seven men, boarded and set fire to the Don Juan de Austria, Isla de Cuba, Isla de Luzon, General Lezo, Correo, and Marques del Duero all of which had been abandoned in shallow water and left scuttled by their deserting crews. This was a courageous undertaking, as these vessels were supposed to have been left with trains to their magazines and were not far from the shore, where there were hundreds of Spanish soldiers and sailors, all armed and greatly excited. The Manila, an armed transport which was found uninjured after having been beached by the Spaniards, was therefore spared. Two days later she was easily floated, and for many years did good service as a gunboat. The little Petrel continued her work until 5.20 p.m., when she rejoined the squadron, towing a long string of tugs and launches to be greeted by volleys of cheers from every ship. The order to capture or destroy the Spanish squadron had been executed to the letter. Not one of its fighting vessels remained afloat. That night I wrote in my diary, reached Manila at daylight, immediately engaged the Spanish ships and batteries at Cavite, destroyed eight of the former, including the Reina Cristina and Castilla, anchored at noon off Manila. As soon as they had sunk the Aloha and silenced the batteries at Sangley Point, the Olympia, followed by the Baltimore and Raleigh, while the Concord and Petrel were carrying out their orders, started for the anchorage off the city. The Manila batteries, which had kept up such a persistent, though impotent, firing all the early part of the day, were now silent and made no attempt to reopen as our ships approached the city. Consul Williams was sent on board a British ship moored close inshore near the mouth of the Pasig River, with instructions to request her captain to be the bearer of a message to the Spanish captain-general. This message was taken ashore at 2 p.m. in the form of a note to the British consul, Mr. E. H. Rawson Walker, who, after the departure of Mr. Williams, had assumed charge of our archives and interests, requesting him to see the captain-general and to say to him on my behalf that if another shot were fired at our ships from the Manila batteries, we should destroy the city. Moreover, if there were any torpedo boats in the Pasig River, they must be surrendered, and if we were allowed to transmit messages by the cable to Hong Kong, the Captain-General would also be permitted to use it. Assurance came promptly that the forts would not fire at our squadron unless it was evident that a disposition of our ships to bombard the city was being made. This assurance, which was kept even during the land attack upon the city, some three months later, led me to drop anchor for the first time since we had entered the bay. 
From the moment that the Captain General accepted my terms, the city was virtually surrendered, and I was in control of the situation, subject to my government's orders for the future. I had established a base seven thousand miles from home, which I might occupy indefinitely. As I informed the Secretary of the Navy in my cable of May 4th, our squadron controlled the bay and could take the city at any time. The only reason for awaiting the arrival of troops before demanding its surrender was the lack of sufficient force to occupy it. In answer to the other points of my message, the Captain General, Don Basilio Augustin Davila, said that he knew of no torpedo boats in the river, but that if there were any, his honor would not allow him to surrender them. As there were none, he was quite safe in making this reservation, which did not affect the main fact that his capital was under our guns. He refused my request about the cable. As a result, he found himself cut off from all telegraphic communications with the outside world on the next morning because I directed the Zafiro to cut the cable. As the sun set on the evening of May 1st, Crowds of people gathered along the waterfront, gazing at the American squadron. They climbed on the ramparts of the very battery that had fired on us in the morning. The Olympia's band, for their benefit, played La Paloma and other Spanish airs, and while the sea breeze wafted the strains to their ears, the poor colonel of artillery who had commanded the battery, feeling himself dishonored by his disgraceful failure, shot himself through the head. During the mid-watch that night, a steam launch was discovered coming off from Manila. The crews went to quarters and searchlights, and guns were trained upon her until she approached the Olympia, when she was allowed to come alongside. A Spanish official was on board. He desired permission to proceed to Corregidor to instruct the commanding officer that none of the batteries at the entrance to the bay were to fire on our ships when passing in or out. Permission was granted, and he was told to return the following morning. When he came, he was put on board the Raleigh, which was sent with the Baltimore as escort to demand the surrender of all the defenses at the entrance to the bay. The surrender was made, and the garrisons disarmed. The next day, I had the Boston and Concord land parties who disabled the guns and brought their breech plugs off to the ships. All the ammunition found, as it was of a caliber unsuited to any of our guns, was destroyed. Meanwhile, to my surprise, on the morning of May 2nd, the Spanish flag was seen to be again flying over the Cavite arsenal. Captain Lamberton was sent at once to inquire what it meant, and to demand a formal surrender. He went over to Cavite in the Petro, and upon leaving her to go on shore, gave instructions that in case he did not return within an hour, she was to open fire on the arsenal. Upon landing, he found the Spanish soldiers and sailors under arms, and in answer to his inquiry what was meant by this and by the hoisting of the Spanish colors, he was informed by the Spanish commandant, Captain Sostoa, that the colors had been lowered the day before only as a token of a temporary truce. Captain Lamberton's reply to this evasive excuse was an ultimatum that if the white flag were not hoisted by noon, he would open fire. Captain Sostoa then asked for time in which to refer the matter to Madrid, and this being refused, for time to refer it to the authorities in Manila. But he was informed that only an unconditional surrender of officers, men, and arms would be considered. 
Captain Lamberton then returned to the petrel, and at 11.35 the white flag was hoisted by the order of Admiral Montojo, and it was this order, peculiarly enough, and not the loss of his squadron, that led to his court-martial upon his return to Spain. Shortly afterward all the Spanish officers and men evacuated the place, possibly imperfect knowledge of each other's language by Captain Lamberton and Captain Sostoa led to a misunderstanding of our terms by the Spaniards. In a way this was fortunate for us, as we were in no position to take care of prisoners. We had what we needed, possession of the arsenal, with its machinery, workshops, and supplies, as a base for future operations. It was not until May 4th, however, when all the aftermath of the details of the victory had been cared for, that I found it convenient to send the McCullough to Hong Kong to transmit to Washington the complete news of what the squadron had accomplished, where already many misleading reports had been received from Spanish sources. Before the cable was cut, the Captain General, in a communication to his government, had acknowledged his severe loss, yet intimated that the American squadron had been repulsed while other cables affirmed that our casualties were heavy. But the newspapers of May 2nd had had a brief announcement of the victory, one of which had been sent by the operator at the Manila cable station before the cable was cut. Senator Redfield Proctor of Vermont, who had been responsible for my assignment to the command of the Asiatic Squadron, felt that he had a personal cause for jubilation, and on the morning of the 2nd he wrote the following note, in his characteristic vein, to President McKinley. I feel well this morning. You remember that you gave me, at my earnest request, the direction to Secretary Long to assign Commodore Dewey to the Asiatic Squadron. You will find you made no mistake, and I want to say that he will be as wise and safe if there are political duties devolving on him, as he is forcible in action. There is no better man in discretion and safe judgment. We may run him against you for president. He would make a good one. The president now gave me the same rank of acting rear admiral that Captain Sampson, commanding the North Atlantic Squadron, had already received. Congress passed a vote of thanks to the squadron commander, its officers and men, and all anxiety for the safety of the Pacific Coast was relieved. One of the most gratifying cables was this. Every American is your debtor. Roosevelt. Not until many weeks later, when the mails began to arrive, did I fully realize how the victory had electrified the whole United States. One of the first congratulatory letters received by particularly prize, it was written by my old friend John Hay, then ambassador to England, in the delightful phrase of which he was a master. He spoke of the, quote, mingled wisdom and daring, of our entrance into the bay, which has always seemed to me as fine a compliment as any naval officer could receive. The victory had put a stop to the talk of European intervention. It had set a pace to be followed in the operations on the Atlantic coast, and had checked the mendacious slanders about our navy, which had been circulated broadcast throughout continental Europe. There were reports of utter lack of discipline, and that our crews were entirely foreign mercenaries. Perhaps, in comparison with some foreign navies, we lacked the etiquette of discipline, which is immaterial if the spirit of discipline exists. We had the spirit, efficient, dependable, and intelligent. The man behind the gun was not a foreigner. 
with the development of the new navy the percentage of american-born seamen had rapidly increased it was about eighty per cent in my squadron in his war proclamation april twenty third eighteen ninety eight the spanish captain-general had declared that the north american people were constituted of all the social excrescences he spoke of us as a squadron manned by foreigners possessing neither instruction nor discipline which was unacquainted with the rights of property and had come to kidnap those persons whom they consider useful to man their ships or to be exploited in agricultural or industrial labor vain designs ridiculous boastings they shall not profane the tombs of your fathers they shall not gratify their lustful passions at the cost of your wives and daughters honor or appropriate the property your industry has accumulated as a provision for your old age the author of this uh, proclamation i was told was not the captain-general himself but the archbishop of manila who as head of the church in the philippines was ex officio a member of the general council of the colony some months later i had the pleasure of entertaining him on board the olympia in his honor i had the ship's company paraded as he saw the fine young fellows march past his surprise at their appearance was manifest admiral you must be very proud to command such a body of men he said finally yes i am i declared and i have just the same kind of men on board all the other ships in the harbor admiral i have been here for thirty years he concluded i have seen the men of war of all nations but never have i seen anything like this as he pointed to the olympia's crew in view of the language of the proclamation i considered this generous admission very illuminating but better than winning the esteem of foreigners was winning that of our own people they could have had none too great confidence in their navy at the outbreak of the war or else there would not have been such a popular cry to have the atlantic coast guarded against possible ravages by severa's squadron it was the ceaseless routine of hard work and preparation in time of peace that won manila and santiago valor there must be but it is a secondary factor in comparison with strength of material and efficiency of administration valor the spaniards displayed and in the most trying and adverse circumstances the courageous defense made by all the vessels of the spanish squadron the desperate attempt of the reina cristina to close with the olympia and the heroic conduct of our captain who after fighting his ship until she was on fire and sinking lost his own life in his attempt to save his wounded men only excite the most profound admiration and pity but what might not have been accomplished had this courage been properly directed and had there been appreciation of the importance of preparation for three months war had been imminent and although the spanish government was highly reprehensible for its unaccountable inertia and spanish indolence and climatic influences must bear their share of blame nothing can excuse the spanish authorities in the philippines for neglecting to utilize the materials of defense already in their possession the approach of our squadron had been reported 
from Bolinale in the morning, and from Subic in the afternoon, the day before the battle. Yet the Spanish admiral that very evening left his flagship and went over to Manila, five miles distant, to attend a reception given by his wife. He was driving back to Cavite by carriage at the same hour that our squadron was passing through the Boca Grande. Many of his officers, following his example, passed the night ashore, and were seen returning to their ships early on the morning of the battle, after the firing had actually begun. To us, it seems almost incomprehensible that the guns of Caballo and Corregidor and Punta Restinga failed to fire on our ships, that when our vessels were hampered by the narrow waters of the entrance, there was no night attack by the many small vessels possessed by the Spaniards, and that during the action neither the Isla de Cuba nor the Isla de Luzon, each of them protected by an armored deck and fitted with two torpedo tubes, made any attempt to torpedo our ships. Naturally, the Spanish government attempted to make a scapegoat of poor Admiral Montojo, the victim of their own shortcomings and maladministration, and he was soon afterward ordered home and brought before a court-martial. It was some satisfaction to know that a factor in influencing the court in concluding that he had fulfilled his duty in a courageous manner was a letter from me, testifying to his gallantry in the action which I was glad to give in response to his request. End of chapter 15